Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to another edition of the Geneva Business Insider. And for longtime viewers of The Corporate Report, you'll remember that this is our monthly series where we talk to our good friend David L. Smith of the Geneva Business Insider, uh, who, of course, is there in Geneva providing us insights on social and economic and geopolitical issues, not only in Europe, but all around the globe. However, you will have noticed that it's been several months since our last conversation. In fact, we're just on the edge of May here in 2014, and this is our first conversation of the year. And David, you will be pleased to know that you are back by popular demand. I've had several emails wondering where you were, and in fact, a few just this week trying to f figure out what happened to the Geneva Business Insider. So here we are. We're back. We're covering things once again. Thank you again for your time. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you very much, and thanks to my admirers for motivating me to come back as well after my period of hibernation. Well, it's good to know that people out there are uh, are keeping track of, of the, the Geneva Business Insider blog, and hopefully you'll be updating it a little bit more, because I think people are looking forward to to, to your posts. But. Uh, I'll be a good boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll motivate you. Don't worry. All right. Well, let's get roll up our sleeves and get to work. Um, there's a lot going on to talk about in the world. But of course, one of the big events happening right now is happening not too far from where you are, at least a lot closer to what you than me. And that's in Eastern Europe, where, of course, the Ukrainian crisis continues to brew and percolate. And I won't attempt to summarize the current situation because it really is fluid. It is changing moment by moment. And by the time we record this and get it posted and people listen to it, it will already be yesterday's news. So rather than concentrating on the latest developments, let's just talk about the Ukrainian crisis, how it's unfolding and how it's affecting Europe and Russia, and perhaps most importantly, the excluded middle, the Ukrainians themselves, which is interestingly enough, an angle that not a lot of people talk about when they're talking about this crisis. Uh, tell us from your perspective about what's, what's really happening here and the, the historical context that's led us to this. Well, I think the fairest thing is to start with with the history, because uh, <clears throat> you know, conveniently, if you look at the the versions given by um, the American Secretary of State, Mr. Kerry, history started when there was a when there was a coup in the country, and nothing that happened before that has any relevance whatsoever. Now, I mean, all all of the things that we're witnessing at the moment it is. Um, you know, a kind of re-engineering re of, of events. Uh, you, Ukraine is what? I mean, it's like the Midwest of America. It's in, in the 19th, cent in 19th century, probably. You've got vast amounts of wheat fields and crops and all the rest of it. Um, it's kind of sandwiched between superpowers. And it, uh, as so often happens, if you're sandwiched between superpowers, you are the whipping boy of anyone who wants to come along and have a surrogate war using you as a mechanism. So if you take uh, if you take the two sides of the country, the western part of the Ukraine, yes, it leans towards Europe, um, but it, it is a fairly poor part. On on the eastern side, you have the you have the uh, you know the Russian side and the Russian borders, where of course the the story about Crimea having been annexed is portrayed in in scandalously different ways by by two powers whose vested interests are are what comes out of the descriptions. But uh, West Eastern Ukraine is basically a kind of Rust Belt area where, where they have uh, some engineering businesses, they're, pro they're manufacturing for things like the Russian railway, uh, their coal, you know, coal mines, iron, iron, iron and steel works and things like that. But nothing of a sophisticated nature and only the kind of country that could survive in a semi-third world environment. 
So now what we're looking at is a country being torn apart, apart by the forces being put in motion by the great powers. And you have on the west of the country, you, you have um, a government who are happy enough to seize power, but they're happy also the same day to cede it to the IMF and Western interests and basically pimp their people for whatever, whatever can be got out of it for their own political aggrandizement and, and gain. And if you look at the history, if you want to understand what the IMF really is, it is nothing more than an asset-stripping debt collector for the Western powers. And if you want to go on to Google and Google a few of the countries that have been subjected to the IMF rape, um, then you can. You go to the east, you, you have um, <clears throat> a country which is pretty much aligned with, with Russia historically. And uh, again, there is some support there of um, this kind of second level um, in industrial capability of the country, which would be completely destroyed if the IMF ever got its hands on, on that kind of infrastructure. So the whole, the whole thing is, um, it, it was probably a country that would have been le best left in peace. But uh, of course that was too much for the um, neoconservative, neoliberal movements in, in the US. And what we're seeing with Ukraine is just, I think, a further extension of the um, project for the North American century, uh, heading its way towards uh, Central Europe and, and towards Russia. And I think President Putin has been put in a position by the American government where, where he is either going to accept that the Ukraine falls under the influence of America, or alternatively, he puts up a fight. But he knows perfectly well if he doesn't put up a fight, then the game plan which has been mapped out for the Ukraine is exactly what will be applied in Russia in, you know, two to five years' time. And, you know, the, down, the downside risk for the, the, the elites in, in Washington is, um, you know, one is they either win the game or alternatively they create and completely destabilize a major country on the borders with Russia. And this is exactly the same thing for those with a historical uh, perspective that happened after Vietnam, where America came out of Vietnam, and when they, when they saw the problems coming in Afghanistan, they said, oh, well, we're going to manufacture a second, we're going to give the Russians another uh, a Vietnam experience of their own. Now, all that's happening is they're doing the same thing with Ukraine. And what one has to do is try and imagine how the Americans would react if, for example, um, you were to take... Um, let's say, Mexico, and destabilize Mexico, and then decide that that should belong to the, the Warsaw Pact countries and have, <laughs> you know, and, and have uh, military presence put on there, and then just scream rape uh, at, every, at every turn. So the whole thing is a tragedy. Um, and if you look at the, the situation for a normal person in, in Ukraine, the Russian deal is infinitely better, because if you look at how much the police would get paid in the Russian system, uh, it would be much more. If you look at how much pensioners would get paid, it would be much more. And then you're asking people to, to risk their lives in the east of the country against people who are rightly indignant or, or even um, ready to revolt against the, the influence coming from, from the West. And you're asking people to put their lives at risk for 100 or $200 a month. So the, the, whole, the whole thing is a complete catastrophe from start to finish, but the origins of it, undoubtedly, in my mind, are overreaching by um, <clears throat> America and NATO. And having once done so, they're not prepared to back down. 
Well, I certainly agree that the IMF and NATO powers and their influence in what's going on right now is lamentable and certainly destabilizing and is not going to work out in the best interests of the people of Ukraine. But on the other side of this equation, I don't see anything much happier coming out of the Russian side of this. And for whatever few extra scraps the uh, average person would get from the master's table under a Russian master... I think the Ukrainian people have genuine grievances with the oligarchs there in the country who have been time and time again since the fall of the Soviet Union being basically in bed with with Russia in various ways through the uh, the, the gas industry and the pipelines, with perhaps uh, Julia, Yulia Timoshenko being one of the, the prime examples of that, the, the so-called gas princess who made her billions um, on the back of basically selling out her country for, uh, for, you know, Russian gas interests. So I think there is a genuine grievance among the Ukrainian people about the Russians and their influence in the country as well, that was reflected, I think, to a certain extent in, in these protests. And I think the, the U.S. NATO IMF forces are riding on the back of that, uh, of that uh, disgust with the, the oligarchs. And, and again, that leaves, I think, the Ukrainians in the position of what, you know, what position are they really in? I, I mean, let's face it, there's a, not a lot of love for, uh, for Russia in Western Ukraine. And uh, of course, we're, we're looking at things like the, the Holodomor, the, 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 the hunger extermination in the 1930s, Joseph Stalin uh, ordering the deaths of seven and a half million Ukrainians. Uh, we had the uh, Ukrainian resistance against the Soviets back at the end of the Second World War before they got run over. Um, this is a country that's that's fought against Russia for a very long time, and there's some a lot of grievances there. Again, I just see a pincher movement going on between two great powers that are using this country that has, for so much of its history, been used as basically pawns in this great, great geopolitical chess game. And uh, either way, I just don't see a happy ending for the Ukrainian people in all of this. Um, where, where, where does the Ukrainian people? Where do you, where can they possibly turn from uh, from this? I mean, they overthrow one government, and another set of oligarchs comes in to sell sell them out to the other side. I mean, there there seems to be no possible resolution for them that would lead to anything you know fundamentally better than than what they have. Yeah, well, I think that, that you tragically summarize the truth of it. The, the superpowers involved in this do not care one jot about the people in the Ukraine. Um, maybe Russia does more than the West, but I, and I think the reason I say that is because it will create a real mess on their borders if they don't have it under control. If for any, any reason this goes wrong for the West, then I, you know, I don't think that they really care at all. They've got a couple of cushioning countries between them and any, any big problem. And if you just kind of look at, at um, you know, the, the, the big military buildup in, in, in the Western, NATO, in the Eastern NATO countries at the moment, just to give you some kind of an idea, you know, Ukraine is a hell of a long way away. It's as far away as, it is, is, as Miami is from New York. So you have all these uh, early warning aircraft systems going over, all the fighters going over. But uh, if, if the fighters were actually going to try and take any problems to the Ukraine, they would run out of fuel before they got home. So it, it is that the, the whole thing is just a great big charade, and the amount of money that's been spent on the military build-up and the demonstration of, of totally uncoordinated force by the West, if they took that money and gave it as a supplement to the GNP of the country, it would be worth an awful lot more than what the, they're doing right now. 
Well, let's approach this from a slightly different angle. Um, there's, I think there's some really interesting divisions that are coming out um, in the supposedly united front of the European side of this issue um, from a lot of corporations that are now warning against these Russian sanctions because they happen to be in bed with the Russians and don't want their business interests disturbed. And that includes, of course, British Petroleum and uh, Germany's BASF and other such uh, corporations that are heavily active in the Russian economy. BP owns 20% of Russia's state-owned Rosneft, and the BP CEO recently came out to say that uh, the uh, uh, Russia was a, uh, a, a good member of the, the business community and business they, they would keep up business as usual with Russia, um, th- despite what's going on. And then on the other side of it, um, you have nation states that are um, not exactly going along with the party line. So you have the European Council and the European Commission trying to basically demonize uh, the the sort of Russian uh, gas interests and to try to put a stop to the South Stream pipeline. But then you have some of the countries that would be direct beneficiaries of the South Stream pipeline, like Hungary and Romania, starting to say, well, hey, wait, no, we don't want to stop that. That's that's a good thing. We want to keep that. So so let's let's look at this. There's some interesting cracks developing in the uh, in the European facade of, you know, oneness and togetherness on this front. What does this tell us, if anything at all, about the the ability um, for an actual war to develop in this age of, you know, global interconnectedness and all of these hardwired relations with these pipelines? Well, there are just unlimited conflicts of interest. I mean, if you, if you try and imagine the situation, let's talk about it briefly militarily before economically. If you were sitting in, in any of the Baltic states, which are tiny little postage stamp states attached to the edge of, um, <clears throat> the edge of Russia, how would you feel about a NATO build-up being done in your, in your country? I mean, the last thing that you want from the country that is providing you with 95% of your energy needs is for your country to be used as an aircraft carrier for, <clears throat> for the Americans to uh, potentially take an aggressive position with the Russians. And once again, the distance between there and the epicenter of the problem, as I say, is more than the distance from New York to Miami. Then you have the question of, um, <clears throat> you know, they, the, the relationships are, are, are around, you know, let's talk about the energy side of it. Um, you have countries like Germany, which, which takes a huge amount of gas from, uh, from Russia, 30% of their supplies are thereabouts. But there come countries like Lithuania, Latvia, Bulgaria, and a few others, which get 95% of their supplies. And all of these countries are meant to stand in line and line up with the Americans and say, you know, we're on a united front, where we're, we're America does not have massive... Uh, issues with having a having a fight with then with, with Russia, but these countries' economies are literally, you know, turning on the back of Rus- Russian energy support uh, sources and quite often Russian, you know, economic ties. So I would imagine that it doesn't matter who it is in Europe. I mean, the fact that we're we're NATO is now pretending to have a united front. It is impossible. If you're Mrs. Merkel, whose telephone conversations are being listened into by Obama and, and the NSA, where a third of your energy is coming from Russia, where you speak Russian yourself with Mr. Putin personally, where you lived in Eastern Europe, where you understand exactly what the game was like, which is what Merkel did, and you have the clans in Washington a continent away with nothing to lose, really, apart from 
using others as, as, as puppets in, in their bigger game. You know, the membership of NATO is becoming a bit like protection money in the mafia. You know, you pay 1% of your GDP and the Americans may or may not be there on the day when you actually do have a problem which they've created for you in the first place. So the, the divisions within Europe must be extremely severe, although they're pretending economically and militarily there's some unity. And the other thing I find fascinating it is the way that China has reacted to this, because if Putin has understood that the Ukraine model will be rolled out in Russia very shortly if there's success in the present mechanism, then China has equally well understood it. And America, I think, has managed to combine doing everything wrong. They've made their allies enemies, or not necessarily enemies, but uh, afraid of them. They have uh, made Russia hostile, and they've made China align to a large degree with, with, with Russian interests because they see their interests, at least as regards the United States, as being exactly the same. And if you add to that the, the consequences for the dollar of the fact that there, there is going to be um, increasing trading in, in non-dollar denominated money, then what you're going to see is a collapse in the demand for the dollar, a collapse in the dollar because nobody wants it, hyperinflation being imported into the States, and, and a major, major problem. And all of these things are a direct result of the stupidity and arrogance of American foreign policy. The real solution to this, I think, is that they should fire Kerry, they should fire Mrs. Newland, and uh, they should apologize and go home. But of course, <laughs> anything sensible is never what's going to happen. Well, I would go you one further and say they should disband the U.S. government altogether and the government of every other nation, but that's just my pro political proclivities. But I think you're exactly right about this. This is going to backfire. It can't help but backfire on, on the European economy generally, which is barely struggling to, uh, to live through its own recovery, which we keep hearing about, and now is going to be playing, you know, nursemaid to, to Ukraine, which is itself a basket case, economically speaking. So it's, uh, it, there, there's no way this is going to be a happy thing for the European Union. And, uh, and I think also that's perfectly predictable. I mean, there's no way that, that the, uh, the, the planners of what, whatever, you know, operations are going on in that part of the world right now do not understand this and in fact I've I've been writing about this now for the last few weeks in uh, my, my weekly subscriber newsletter talking about how the West is engineering engineering its own its own downfall um, precisely because they are driving Russia into China's arms exactly as you say it's going to uh, erode the the global use of the dollar it's going to uh, erode that global reserve currency status it's going to uh, affect the European economy it already is starting to Russia is is turning to Asia for gas pipeline deals with South Korea they're taking over uh, Kyrgyz gas. I mean, all sorts of things are going on right now geopolitically that is solidifying this resistance block to the, the NATO powers. And, uh, and again, I think this is perfectly predictable. They are creating this new Cold War situation as a reality. No matter whether it, there's anything behind it or not, they're creating it on the ground. And again, I just don't think that they could be doing that willy-nilly. I, I think they understand the, the consequences of their, their strategy. My only question is, why? Why would they be doing this, other than it, it served them well in the 20th century to have that boogeyman, and I think they're just creating the next 21st century boogeyman. Yeah, well, the boogeyman, they're going to go back to the tried and tested boogeyman of uh, you know, the, the, the bad Russian. Uh, I mean, I know a lot of Russians. I mean, Geneva is filled with Russians. Um, I spent a lot of time recently in Monaco. It's filled with Russians as well. 
And I have to say that most of them, uh, you know, they maybe lack certain sophistication, but most of them are fairly decent kind of, of uh, people. Yet they are being vilified, their businesses are being persecuted. I've heard recently that Gunvor, which is one of the companies closely associated theoretically with Mr. Putin, is being placed under all kinds of pressures in its day-to-day -day trading operations because of non-cooperation of, of banks who are afraid to do anything that might upset the the position of NATO, the West, and, in, and America in particular. Now, I mean, in any form of uh, indirect economic sabotage seems to be all right, but at the same time, you know, uh, Mr. Putin is expected to honor all the obligations to, uh, let's say, BP, let's say to, you know, some of the uh, <coughs> countries involved in, in uh, crop production and, and projects in, in the Ukraine. I mean, all these things are sacrosanct, but uh, any dirty trick on the other side is okay. So we'll see where it all ends up, but, uh, you know, and, and then we have to look at what's going on again with, uh, with the European Central Bank, who are now threatening to print money. Uh, to try and stave off a, a slowdown. Now, this is a convenient kind of excuse for them at the moment, but imagine you're in Greece where you've been suffering severe economic crisis for five or six years now. Hospital supplies don't exist, pensions aren't played. In Cyprus, for example, jumping to their neighbor, you know, banks are bailing in and stealing money from client accounts. And at the same time, you know, the EU is turning and saying, oh, well, we're just going to hand over $20 billion from us, the non-elected uh, chosen few, to a country which isn't, doesn't even belong to the Euro European Union. On what possible basis? So, I mean, the, the, the insanity that is going with all of this is uh, one day going to erupt. And the people in Europe, uh, in, in more peaceful countries will eventually end up realizing that they're going to have to behave like the Russians in East Ukraine and take up arms against the sea of trouble, as Shakespeare would say. <laughs> what a poetic way to put it. But I think you're exactly right. I mean, the insanity is, is, is so fundamental now. It's so institutional. It's so widespread that it almost looks like sanity in this day and age. So we have this narrative of the Eurozone recovery. And as part of that, we've just had S&P come out and reconfirm France's AA uh, credit rating. They've upgraded Italy's credit rating to triple B+. And they've downgraded Russia to, I think, triple B minus. So just one step above junk bond status. Um, which, again, I mean, it's so obviously political uh, in nature rather than economic because of the basket case that is the Eurozone right now. And and yet we have this, you know, the Italian and Spanish uh, bonds are, are selling like hotcakes and are, are near record lows or even at record lows, I believe, in the Spanish case. It's ridiculous. Um, what on earth is happening with this recovery and and how is this is taking how is this taking place well the rating agencies are nothing more than an extension of american foreign policy and if you look at it very cynically when, when the subprime crisis came along the rating agencies were called into play to dump as much as possible of what they knew was bad stuff outside the u.s and, and rate it accordingly so that, that's what they're there for, and any time a rating agency actually tells the truth, they get harassed or, or they get the tax inspectors around the next day or they get the license to, try the, to remove their license. So all of that can just be dumped. And, and I mean, as far as Italy is concerned or Spain, I, I mean, <laughs> these are countries I visit uh, regularly. I was in Spain a few, I'm going to Spain in a few weeks and I was in Italy uh, less than a month ago. 
You know, these countries are not in any form of recovery. If you talk about, let's say, the south of Spain, where, you know, there's meant to be a property recovery, you see houses that sold for $300,000 a few years ago. You're lucky to get 100000 for them. But yet, of course, when you do the, the stress tests on Spanish banks, yeah, things are pretty much okay. And if you do the pan-European stress testing as well, apart from the fact you rig all the criteria to make it look as though there is something... <laughs> you know something good um, you know everything is a lie everything is rigged and uh, everything to do with banking rating agencies the bank's self-evaluations etc 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 is just to pull the wool over the eyes of the public for another few years longer and I suppose what you can say is, is that the press is complicit with this completely uh, but what is not complicit with it are people like you and others who stand up and tell the truth and, and the real illustration of the complete degeneracy of the system is, is the fact that the only way they can keep it going is by lying about absolutely everything. You know, whether it be the value of gold, whether it be the interest rates, whether it be currency exchange rates, whether it be commodity prices, whether everything is lied about, absolutely everything. And if not, the system wouldn't work. <laughs> so. And one day the lies will come home to roost and the system will collapse and that, that is the only way that this can end. But what I do know is when it ends, <coughs> there will be Mr. Draghi there saying everything's well in the financial sector 24 hours before the collapse. You're, you're so right about that. And, and you're exactly right. I mean, it's a systemic issue. I mean, this is not just one or, or two things that are being tinkered with here. It is across the board. Everything is being covered up and lied about. And uh, when the emperor really isn't wearing any clothes, I guess you just have to create an entire different reality in order to, to see those clothes there. And that's exactly what they have. And, and so when it comes to an end, it will be a systemic collapse. And unfortunately, systemic collapses do not tend to work out well for the vast majority of, of people on this planet. So I'm, I'm not looking forward to that or relishing it in any way. It's just, uh, there's no way around it. So uh, it's going to be um, quite a ride. But uh, what, before we get there, um, there is another story that came across the newswires that I thought was interesting from your neck of the woods, talking about how the EU is edging closer to a free movement solution with Switzerland, which is odd because... Um, from what I understand, Swiss and the European Union had free movement association or something like that. But in February, Switzerland voted to in a referendum to to put quotas on EU immigration. Fill us in on this story. What what's the background on this? Right. Well, firstly, I'm not the greatest expert on uh, Swiss domestic uh, policy. I'm more involved in finance and international things. But but very very simply, Switzerland is still. Uh, what America set out to be at the time of the founding fathers in many ways. It is a federal system. Uh, the, the, the people do have a, a, a loud voice in what, what goes on. And if you can get together more than 100,000 signatures in the country of 7 million, uh, you can have a referendum on the subject of your choice. Now, obviously, there's a lot of political machinations and delays and all kinds of things that make this uh, more difficult. But essentially, the people of Switzerland are fed up, and uh, they see a system where they had their borders pretty much closed in, in the Cold War. They opened them somewhat after that, but anyone who came to Switzerland had to come here with a job, with a salary, be willing to pay taxes, and could lose their, their residence if they were, you know, didn't play the game, got involved in any criminal activities or anything else. And Switzerland at that time was a wonderful place to live. 
you could leave, uh, you know, I left once, I left my wallet on the top of my car, I forgot about it, and as in a restaurant, someone came in and said, oh, I, I saw you going in, you forgot your wallet. Or you can leave the same restaurant, say, I forgot my wallet, uh, can you send me the bill to my home? And they would do it. So these are the wonderful things of a country which, which are, are now being destroyed by, by, you know, by the death of a thousand cuts that, that go with, the, <coughs> with the, the EU policies. So within Switzerland, and particularly in eastern Switzerland, where, where there's the Swiss-German population who are traditionally more conservative, there has been a, a stand against this kind of uncontrolled uh, arrival of people. And just to give examples, in, in, in Geneva, near to where I live, on every street corner now, you've got beggars in the street, you've got people stealing around tables in restaurants, you, you've got endless crime. And it's not surprising these things happen, because if you take someone from a country which is part of the EU, uh, which allows them to come here, and they come here and they can't find work, then by lunchtime, if you're hungry, you've got to steal something in a shop. By dinner, if you're, you know, you have to steal a bit more so you have somewhere to sleep or clothes or whatever. So all of this uncontrolled um, migration, immigration, call it what else, whatever else you want, it has been very detrimental to the extremely high quality of life in Switzerland. And uh, again, I jump countries, but uh, in Monaco, for example, when this kind of issue uh, occurs, uh, the people who have come into the country are approached by the police and they're simply told, your presence is not desired, would you please leave? And if the question is asked more than three times, they end up uh, you know, having some, something more serious done about it. And I, I fail to see the, the, the purpose in, in allowing people who are not economically independent to walk around from one place to another, one country to another depending on the welfare system of, of their host country. They should do that at home, find themselves a job, and try and save their own countries. So the, these, are the, these are the issues which um, I think are, I'm expressing my opinion, but I think I express also the opinion of, of what is more than 51% of the Swiss population. And this is, the, this is why there's been the pushback. Exactly right. Well, I'm on the other side of the planet and, and, and visit Europe once every couple of years, if that. But I can certainly tell from, from all of the, the media and everything that I get from, from Europe, it, this is a huge issue in a lot of countries. Of course, not just Switzerland. The immigration, the migration uh, issue is, is a huge one. And it's really a, a seething cauldron of resentment and, and potential social strife there. And one wonders, in the event of a systemic collapse. I mean, even in the best of times, that would create some messy social situations, but one can imagine how that would play into a situation where people are already at each other's throats because of all of these other tensions that are going on. Yeah, exactly. It, it is uh, just adding fuel to a fire that need not necessarily exist in the first place if the policies were different. But again, the people who are making these decisions for, for sovereign countries are, are uncontrolled, uh, unelected officials sitting in places like Brussels who moralize on what should or should happen for in other people's countries um, willy-nilly and without any or sense of responsibility for the consequences of their acts. In fact, it's a bit like the, the situation in the Ukraine where the same meddling is going on by the same people with complete disregard for the interests of uh, the local population. 
And in, in many, you know, many Western European countries at the moment, you know, where there's pressure, downward pressure on wages, high levels of unemployment, the last thing people want to see is a, a, another pile of alien people coming into the country who may undercut them on, on, on wage levels and uh, take their jobs and, and force them further down the social scale in the country in which they were born and brought up in. You know, Victoria Newland might have said it in a very different context, but perhaps the, her F the EU comment is a good one. Maybe we should adopt that. <laughs> F the EU <laughs> and Brussels. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, I think we'll leave it there for this month. Um, again, a fascinating conversation. Let's just direct people to your website one more time, and uh, you're going to be updating it on a more regular basis in the future, right? I will have to be a good boy again. Yes, exactly. Um, my website, uh, GenevaBusinessInsider.blogspot.com. Um, you will get regular updates there of my interviews, uh, except for the last three months. <laughs> and uh, I hope for those of you who have been uh, interested in what I have to say, you've enjoyed the talk today, and uh, you continue to listen to James in particular and myself on an occasional basis. Thank you. Well, I certainly enjoyed our talk, if for no other reason than today I found out, found out that you pronounce it harass rather than Harris. So if you also say privacy rather than privacy, I think you'll have to renounce your claim to Queen's English. But um, <laughs> I'm happy about that. All right, David Smith, we'll leave it there. Thank you again for your time. Good. Okay. Thanks a lot.